Daniel chapter 4, the testimony of a Gentile king. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of, on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a de decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen in its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches nevertheless leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth let his heart be changed from that of a man let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over it this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, sets it over the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy God is in you. The chapter is remarkable for so many reasons. It's the testimony of a Gentile king. It's the only chapter in the Bible written by a pagan king. So why does Daniel and God's Holy Spirit include this bit of information in our Bible? Why is it here? What is it doing here? What does it all mean? Remember, one of the great themes of the book of Daniel is God's plan for the future. Another theme in the book of, of Daniel is God's sovereignty over all the earth and heaven itself. One of the themes also is God's plan specifically 
for Nebuchadnezzar and also for Babylon and also for humanity. And so the chapter appears to be an official Babylonian document issued by the king and preserved for all time in our Bible. The document itself was issued some seven years after the events that it describes at the beginning of the chapter, in the middle of the chapter, and at the end of the chapter. So the opening verses are a description of what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. In effect, it describes the greatness of God the Most High and that the God Most High is going to allow Nebuchadnezzar to fall and to be humbled in a most dramatic and remarkable way. And it's going to demonstrate the process of humbling that is brought upon Nebuchadnezzar which results in praise to the Lord Most High. Now, several years have passed between the events of chapter 2. Remember, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there was a series of time that went by. Between chapter 2 and chapter 3, there was a series of some 18 years that have gone by. And now, between chapter 3 and chapter 4, Perhaps as many as a couple of decades have gone by. Nebuchadnezzar will relate the second in a series of three dreams. The first dream took place in chapter one. The second dream takes place in chapter four. But there's another dream in the not too distant future. Now, the chapter begins with a preamble of peace and praise for the God Most High in verses 1 through 3. And so the king praises the greatness of God. Look again at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. The praise that Nebuchadnezzar heaps on God should be considered in light of the boast that he had earlier given in chapter 1 and in chapter 3. Remember, as early as chapter 3, when he consigns the three children to the fiery furnace, he says, who is the God who's going to deliver you from me? And then the God of heaven delivers them in the fiery furnace. And you'll remember in chapter 1, he wants access to supernatural information and he threatens to kill everyone unless the revelation is made. And Daniel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, does exactly that. Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to understand something about the nature and the majesty and the dignity and the glory of this God. And the testimony is addressed to all people, all nations, all languages that dwell on the earth. And again, people have said, well, that's got to be hyperbole because Nebuchadnezzar's reach, though far, because it extended as far as north as you're going to what's now modern-day Turkey and you go west towards the Mediterranean Sea and you go south towards the very borders of Egypt, his kingdom was in fact a great kingdom that incorporated many ethnos, that means people groups and languages, but certainly it didn't reach all people, all nations and all languages until the Holy Spirit decided to put it in our Bible. When the Holy Spirit decided to put it in our Bible, the testimony has real application to everyone, everywhere, speaking every language that has dwelt on the earth or that will dwell on the earth. And so this becomes at least part of the point of the passage because I want you to think carefully and that is, 
Why is this contained in the Bible? Why does he say what he, he says? And what does this have to do with me? Now, again, as we continue our study, look what it says in verse 1. The king's message begins with a wish for peace. Peace be multiplied to you. This in and of itself is interesting because remember, Nebuchadnezzar is a man of war. This is the person who subjugated the northern part of Babylon. He's captured Nineveh. He has basically sacked Jerusalem and leveled it to the ground and stolen, if you will, the treasures that were inside the temple. He's defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish. He is a man of war. So he has brought nations into submission. How do you go from being a man of war to being a man of peace? Something has happened inside of his heart. And so the king intensifies and magnifies that peace. Peace be multiplied to you. It sounds more like a Pauline epistle than an Old Testament document, huh? Remember how Paul opens many of his letters with peace unto you by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the greeting is either mere formality, hyperbole, or maybe it's the evidence of something that has changed, something that has changed inside of his heart. When people speak of peace followed by signs and wonders that the Most High God has done in their life, it should cause you to pay attention. Especially if you've known someone and then all of a sudden there is this remarkable change that has taken place in their life. And you're going, I, I was wondering, I didn't even know it was possible that someone could change so profoundly and so completely. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the king's praise is real. But we're still left with the impression that Nebuchadnezzar does not believe in God completely. He does not necessarily trust him exclusively based on verse 8. Remember, but at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, which means who is like Bel? Or Bel is my example according to the name of my God. So what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's mind and in his heart? Theologians have a name for this. The word that they use is henotheism. Henotheism is the idea that there's this great, marvelous, magnificent, mighty, majestic God, but there are also probably lesser gods. So in a way, if I were to put it in modern vernacular, it would be very much like what the Mormons or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believe, that there is this being who used to be a human being who becomes the supreme being who is then surrounded by lesser beings. So what is going on? Nebuchadnezzar, it would appear, doesn't trust God completely or exclusively because profession does not always mean possession. You may have come in contact with a person like I talked about who goes to church. They open their Bible. They say God words and they speak God sentences. And you think, oh, this person must be a person of God. But there's something disconnected in the life that they really live. The honor that they give to God with their lips doesn't match the honor that they provide for him in their heart or in their life. And for Nebuchadnezzar, at least, minimum, he is going to be taught a lesson it's going to be a very difficult lesson and it's going to be a dramatic lesson. Again, this causes me to pause just for a moment to remind you what I said at the beginning of our message. People have a tendency to learn things the easy way or the hard way. I had a granny who, who watched me when I was a little boy growing up and my granny would say, do you want to learn your lesson the easy way or the hard way? Now, I'm not going to speak for you. I'll only speak for myself. 
because I was stubborn and hard, wicked, and full of pride. The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. And for whatever reason, I wanted to learn the lesson the easy way, but I often had to learn them the hard way. The king mentioned signs and wonders. The message is global and viral. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. By the way, the word sign seems to indicate a miracle with a message. This is the difference between a regular sign. It is a miracle, and the miracle has a message contained within it. And so when he's talking about the signs and wonders, he's talking about a miracle that contains a message. He's already been exposed to the miracle of the message of the dream of chapter one. He's been exposed to the miracle of the fiery furnace with a message that God is able to sovereignly preserve and protect and to deliver. But now there's another sign that's going to take place. It's the sign of his own circumstance as God is going to deal with him. Whereas wonder refers to a miracle that evokes amazement. You see this miracle and you are left open mouth, dumbfounded with no explanation. This is the testimony of the mighty earthly king. This is the testimony of a man. I want you to think about it. Remember what Jesus said in the New Testament? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? There's been a few people in history who have literally gained the whole world as far as financial resources go. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Jeff Bezos... In other words, when you start numbering your wealth, not in terms of millions and not even in terms of billions, but now you start numbering your worth in terms of 50, 60, 70, 100 billion dollars, you're talking about the kind of wealth that gives you limitless resources and almost an absolute power. And so this testimony of the king concerning the most high God is in spite of his limitless wealth, limitless resources, and what he perceives to be his absolute power. And the title that he gives is most significant, most high God. The Lord is the one true God without real competition or equal. All other supernatural beings are as nothing compared to this Lord Most High. When I was reading this, I was thinking about Jesus after his resurrection when he walks through the wall. Now, I want you to just think about that for just a moment. If I could somehow walk through this podium, in other words... I literally could pass through this podium. What would that mean? It would mean that I would have to be heavier than the podium. Now, again, I want you to just think about this for a moment. In the realm of the supernatural, the world that you see and hear, it looks physical and it looks substantive and it looks meaningful. Why is Jesus able to pass through walls? It isn't because he's lighter, it's because he's heavier. Whatever the heaviness of the resurrected body of Jesus is, it is so substantive and weighty that it brings meaning, true meaning to reality. Earlier when we were worshiping the Lord, we sang a song about how weighty is the Lord. His weight is so substantial that all of reality is as nothing. And so the Bible says in verse 3, how great are his signs. The king has already experienced the greatness of God in Daniel's revelation of his dream in chapter 2. God's awesome power to deliver in chapter 3. But here is what's going on in the text. God is not finished with Nebuchadnezzar. 
He has been exposed to one revelation and then another revelation concerning the power of God. But now God is going to humble this great king for a period of time. And the Lord is also going to allow the king to recover his greatness. So what are the lessons for Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn through personal experience, number one, that God's signs are great and his wonders mighty. Number two, that his kingdom is eternal. And number three, that God reigns from generation to generation. His ability to rule and to rule substantially never changes. And so if you're wondering if this God who appears 600 BC or then shows up during the time of Jesus, that somehow things have changed, that his sovereignty has lessened and that time has caused us to distance ourselves from God's sovereignty and majesty and dignity and goodness, you would be very, very mistaken. We have to remember the meaning and significance of the word sign. Both sign and signal comes from the same root word. If you're on C470 and you see a sign that says north is Denver and south is Colorado Springs, the sign tells you something. It points you in a specific direction. That's the purpose of a sign. It is supposed to point you in a specific direction. And in this case, it's supposed to point you to God's supremacy, to God's majesty, to God's dignity, to God's sovereignty. Similar language was used to describe God in his ability to, is, to deliver Israel in Egypt. And so the king resisted the revelation of God in the first chapter. And he sets up a golden image in the second chapter. The children of Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are delivered in the third chapter. He receives a revelation, but there's something wrong with him. There's something broken inside of his heart. He still holds on to the thought that he's the most important being in the universe. The king's vanity will become a portal that will lead to his insanity. The king's testimony is the story of a man who falls and then is restored. And the king's testimony comes not from just some sort of theological examination. This is not something that he learned at Babylonia or, or Babylonian University. This is something that he is going to have to learn in the, in the dark recesses of subjugation. And the decree itself is notable for its transparency and humility. The king contrasts the earthly kingdoms and the heavenly kingdoms. No human authority ex exists except by God and by God's permission. You, it, you've got to understand just how hard it must have been for a person like Nebuchadnezzar to say what he has just said. Can human beings and human governments misrepresent God's authority? The answer is yes. But God isn't mocked. What a person sows, they will reap. What a government sows, it must reap. What a human being sows, he or she must reap. All human authority is derived by God. Paul points this out in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, when he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Does God impart authority within the family? The answer is yes. Does God import or impart authority within the government? The answer is yes. Does God 
impart authority within the church? And I think that the answer is yes. But remember, the authority that comes in the family and the authority that comes to the government and the authority that comes within the church is given by God. And if it's misused in the family, if it's abused by the government, if it's abused by the church, God will deal with it, sometimes catastrophically. And so we see the king's perplexing vision in verses 4 through 10. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the vision in my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, and they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last... Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen in its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I know every time I read it in all of these chapters, I think of sugar plums dancing in your head at Christmas time. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. Think, envision, Jack and the Beanstalk. You see a plane and you see a massive tree and it reaches all the way to the heavens. The king relates his vision in verse 3, verse 9, verse 10. The king begins with a statement of dread at the beginning of verse 5 and the decision to issue the decree in verse 6. The first few decades of the king's reign, again, remember, was marked by conflict, war, the subduing of the surrounding nations. But now Nebuchadnezzar is at peace in his palatial home. His enemies have been subject, subdued and sub, subjugated in verse 4. This is a person who is, seems content and peaceful and prosperous. Everything looks fine on the outside. But something's wrong. Something's horribly and terribly wrong. He receives this dream, but it's no ordinary dream. It's a terrifying dream. Now again, I want you to understand something about nightmare and terrifying dream. It's hard for me to communicate with you how difficult it would have been to scare Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's a scary guy. What he says goes. If he says you live, you get to live. And usually if he said you died, you usually died. Chapter 3 is the exception. It is not the rule. And because he is a terrifying person, he is not a person who's easily terrified. The Lord is going to allow the king to continue in his role. But this king still is holding on to injustice and oppression. How do we know? If we just turn very quickly a little bit ahead in our chapter to verse 27. Look, remember Daniel's advice later on. He's going to say, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. By being righteous, the implication being he wasn't, and your iniquities, the implication being there were things that he was doing that wasn't lining up with God's sovereignty and majesty and dignity and goodness. Just like in the home, just like in the government, 
Just like in the church, if you want to know what's right for your home and right for the government and right for the church, that's where we actually look at the Bible and we say, the Bible says, let's promote righteousness and let's condemn wickedness. Let's make sure that we are a people who hates injustice and hates oppression we know that the king's heart was still filled with pride. Look at verse 30 of chapter 4. The king spoke saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty lurking, lurking deep inside of his heart? Is this recalcitrant that means hardened deep commitment to pride the peace and the prosperity was intended to bring justice and righteousness in other words God allowed the the, the kingdoms to be subdued around him and given Nebuchadnezzar control but again I want you to think about this just think very hard about this Peace and prosperity is supposed to bring justice and righteousness. It's not supposed to feed the monster called pride. The dream's a warning. And the king issues a decree, a formal invitation to all of the wise men of the kingdom. The last decree and the last dream almost cost them their lives. Unlike the first dream, the king says, look, I'm not going to play games with you. I'm not going to say, tell me the dream and its contents. I'm not going to play games with you. Just tell me what it means. And in chapter 1, they fail. In chapter 1, they fail miserably. Or chapter 2, they fail miserably. In chapter 4, they fail miserably. But again, I, I, I want you to think about what's going on in the text. He calls for his council of advisors. The king tries to find the answer from the usual suspects, the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. In other words, he's saying, hey, look, I am here to tell you that I am not a person who understands about divination. The king is basically saying he grows up in a culture and speaks the language of superstition and divination. And he understands that there is a supernatural source of information. One is credible, one is less credible. But again, I want you to just think about what's going on. He first goes to the usual suspects because he's trying to get the information that he desperately thinks he needs in order to go forward with his life. Now, again, I, I want you to think about this. The scribes, the astrologers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. Is there enough information that's been given in the dream that somebody probably thinks, you know what? I suspect that this tree is the Babylonian kingdom, and I suspect this dark, shadowy figure is the king, and I suspect what it means is that there is a God who's going to judge you. And all of them say, who wants to be the one to tell the king there's something horribly and terribly wrong in your heart, and if you don't repent, bad things are going to happen to you. Think about the world in which you live. Who made you preacher? Who are you to preach to me? Who are you to say that there's something wrong inside of my heart? Who are you to tell me to turn from my sin and accept Christ as my savior? And you go, I'm nobody. I am less than nobody. But look what your sin is doing to you. Look what's happening in your heart. Look what's happening if you don't turn from your sin and you turn to the savior. The king tries to find answers, but they're not willing to give him the answers that he's looking for. I almost believe that some must have been able to guess that this wasn't good, that judgment was inevitable. Because again, this king is capable of any kind of bizarre response. In the first dream, the king is concerned. In the second dream, he's terrified. 
But spiritual things require spiritual discernment. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse uh, 14 and 16. Remember, it says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that they may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Paul basically says, look, every single person who's been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit has access to the mind of Christ concerning the most important decisions that we have to make. Look what it says. The king calls on Daniel in verses 8 and 9. What does it mean that he uses the term in verses 8 and 9? But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar. According to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. What does all of that mean? Is this a reference to the Holy Spirit? I'm going to suggest to you that it probably isn't a reference to the Holy Spirit. He has no idea that there's a Holy Spirit. He's basing his statement on Daniel's earlier revelation and interpretation of the dream in chapter 2. He probably means that there's a true God and that this true God works through Daniel and that this true God has given Daniel understanding or the ability, remember, to untie knots or make known mysteries. Now contrast that between the king's God in verse 8 and Daniel's God, the most, or the holy God. This contrast is important for several reasons. It reveals the conflicted heart of the king. I, I can't even begin to tell you how enormously significant this is, but let me try. For a pagan king to refer to the true God as a holy God is monumental. In wicked ancient cultures, whether it was the Assyrian culture or the, the Babylonian culture or the Egyptian culture, deities, supernatural beings were noted not for their holiness, but for their wickedness. There is a reason why the Bible in the New Testament calls these spirit beings, these malevolent beings, unclean. I need you to understand this. Demonic beings are wicked and filthy and unclean. Angelic beings, supernatural angels, are holy and pure, but even in their holiness and purity, it doesn't even come close to approaching the holiness and the dignity and the purity of the self-existent God. There's a reason why the angels that circle the Lord say, holy Holy, holy. God is utterly holy. The gods and spirits of the ancient world were wicked, filthy. Now again, I want you to understand what's going on in the text. At this time, Daniel has almost certainly served this king for some 30 or 40 years. He's not the young guy in the opening chapter who's only eating fruits and vegetables. He is a mature man who has been around the block. And he calls Daniel by his given Hebrew name. We're not told why Daniel didn't come out with the first wave of counselors. Daniel had been appointed, look what it says in verse 9, chief of the magicians. The title is interesting. It's Rab, Shartumim. In the Aramaic, rab, shartumim, the word shartumim means a scribe or a person who's able to take thoughts and translate them in an iconic fashion. And so again, the, the idea in the ancient world where there were people who had the ability to create reality by magic or by ritual or by whatever. 
So the word means scribe, and in this particular instance, it means the chief scribe. It's translated the chief magician, but it could mean something else. It could mean that either Daniel is in charge over these people, which may not be the case, or it may mean that he is the prince among all of his peers. When you're a preacher, like I am, they, we have a saying, you know, we think of people like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was called the prince of preachers. Or we think of Chuck Swindoll as a prince of preachers. In other words, there's, there's Swindoll and then there's everybody else. He, they're just head and shoulders above everyone else. And Daniel is head and shoulders above everyone else. It could mean that. In verse 9, it says, no secret troubles you or no mystery is too difficult for you. In at least one sense, the king got it wrong. When he says, there's no secret that troubles you or no mystery too difficult for you, I think what's real is that no secret or mystery is too hard for God. In other words, if you were to ask Daniel himself, do you know everything about everything? He would say, no. Do you have access to all information? He would have said, no. But if you said, does the God of heaven, the mighty God, does he have access to everything? He would have said, yes. It's the Lord who reveals the mysteries to Daniel. Now again, some scholars believe that Daniel founds an order of scribes or magi who will devote themselves to the study of prophecy and the coming Messiah. And we're going to talk more about that in later chapters, particularly when we get to chapter 9. Many scholars believe that it is Daniel who provides the foundation for later men who will come during the birth of Jesus and present him with gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we should note something. And this is important. Men love either truth or error. People love darkness or light. They gravitate to one or the other. We have no evidence that the king's magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, soothsayers are convinced by Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream in chapter 2 or the miraculous deliverance of Daniel's friends in chapter 3 or Daniel's interpretation of the king's vision in chapter 4. Again, I want you to think about what's going on in the text. Even though they won't interpret the king's vision, we have no evidence that the occult advisors abandoned their so-called gods, abandoned their sorcery, abandoned their enchantments, and abandoned their divinations. They held on to their false beliefs and theological orientation in spite of the overwhelming evidence that was presented to them concerning the nature and the character of the God that had been revealed. And this becomes a problem even in our own culture and society. And I keep saying this, if you can believe the opening verse in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if that single line is true, the rest of the Bible is entirely easy to comprehend and embrace. But how many people do you know that grew up in a Christian home and they deny that Jesus is God. They deny that he died on the cross for sin. They deny that he physically rose from the dead. They deny that he's literally going to come back. They say, you know what, that's all kind of, that's nonsense. People who love the truth will embrace the truth. People who hate the truth will doubt it, deny it, eventually become disgusted by it. But that doesn't mean they stop believing anything. What they start to believe is what they themselves think. The king is convinced that the spirit of God rests on Daniel and that the counsel of Daniel is more valuable than all of the magicians, Chaldeans, scribes, astrologers. So the king 
begins with a description, a tall tree in the middle of the earth in verse 10. Again, think Jack and the Beanstalk. There are many references in the Bible to trees and their significance. Sometimes men are referred to as trees, like in Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that, that the righteous man is like a tree planted by the waters. Sometimes nations are referred to as trees, like in Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 3 through 18, which is a, a picture of Assyria. Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and towering height, its top among the clouds in Ezekiel 31.3. The Babylonian culture had many stories of the cosmic tree that stood in the center of the earth. We have numerous records of this. Ron Rhodes cites a source, quote, in the myth of Ira and Ishum, Marduk speaks of the mesh tree, this is the cosmic tree, whose roots reach down through a great subterranean ocean to the underworld and whose top rises above the heavens. A sacred tree appears in various forms in Assyrian art, unquote. And it's true when I went to Turkey and visited the ruins of the seven churches, there are rugs that we are wo woven with this particular tree that's represented in, in its art. And, and then in verse 11, the watcher's prophetic decree, look what it says, the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens. It could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely. Its fruit abundant. It was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of heavens dwelt in the branches. All flesh was fed from it. Whatever this tree is, it's a cottage industry and the whole world benefits from its presence. I saw the visions of my head while on my bed and there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. Now it gets interesting. The Aramaic noun translated watcher means one who is awake, a watcher. Another way of saying this is, this is a being, <clears throat> whatever this being is, it's a being that never goes to sleep. It's never asleep. It's on constant watch. The cherubim in the Bible are said to be full of eyes all around Ezekiel 1.18. The angels in the book of Revelation chapter 4 verse 6, it says they are full of eyes in front and behind and full of eyes within and without. The picture is a being who sees all, who records all. So there's this large body of literature on this intriguing subject called the Watchers in the Jewish literature of the Hellenistic period, which dates from about 330 BC forward to about 120 uh, BC or 150 BC. There's a book called The Watchers in Enoch, in chapter one, all the way to chapter 36. It's called the Book of the Watchers. The word usually describes fallen angels, but sometimes refers to other angelic beings. The archangel Raphael in 1 Enoch 22.6. Four archangels in 1 Enoch 20 verse 1. Now again, there's no evidence outside of Daniel of this word being used of heavenly or supernatural beings before the third century BC, but it was used in Mesopotamian religions to describe what you and I would call protecting spirits or protecting angels or protecting spirit beings. So this watcher is a powerful supernatural being tasked with the job of reporting to God and executing God's will. We're going to find out a whole lot more about these interesting beings as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. But again, we are given just this sneak peek. There is a, 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 a curtain that is taken away and we begin to understand that there's an invisible realm populated by supernatural beings. 
They see everything that goes on on the earth. They, they report to God. You can find that in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2 of Job, verse 1. So in the book of Daniel and other places, we're, we're given this vision, if you will, of their enormous power, purity, and discernment. And some Bible teachers and scholars suggest that all human beings have a watcher or what maybe you grew up with called a guardian angel. In the New Testament, it speaks of, of how there are these angelic beings that are before God's face. These guardians or watchers are referred to in Psalm 34, 7, in Psalm 35, verse 5. You'll remember that at the beginning of Jacob's uh, life and ministry, as he's fleeing from his brother Esau, he encounters angels as he's running from home in Genesis chapter 28. And he sees this ladder that's been let down from heaven and supernatural beings coming from heaven and then going back to heaven. And then again, at the end of his journey, as he crosses the river Jabbok, right before it, he wrestles with this supernatural being. The prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings 22 reports seeing a heavenly court over which God presides in person. John Phillips writes, quote, the book of Revelation gives us glorious views of a celestial court, unquote. My friend Michael Heiser has written extensively on this subject in a book called The Unseen Realm. And he's also written a book called The Supernatural, where he talks about it at length. In verse 14, it says, he cried aloud and said thus, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast get, get out from under it and the birds from its branches. So here's the picture. The tree is cut, severed. It falls and crashes. As it falls and crashes, they begin to make their way and they sever the limbs and the fruit begins to die. And so the watcher or the messenger has four commands. Number one, cut the tree down, cut off its branches. Number two, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Number three, chase away the animals from beneath the tree and the birds from its branches. And number four, leave the stump of its roots in the ground and bind it with a band of iron and bronze. When we continue our study, we're going to get more into the interpretation. But just for a moment, the king hears something unusual. The image of the tree changes to the description of a man in verses 15 and 16. And the decision is shocking. The tree becomes a man and the man has to live outdoors. And the man lives like an, like an animal exposed to the elements in verse 15. And then in verse 16, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. He's afflicted. The man's mind is changed from human to animal. This is a descent into insanity. Seven seasons are determined. The king hears the messenger pronounce the judgment and the punishment in verse 17. The man, whoever this man is and whatever he's supposed to do, he's supposed to serve as a living testimony that God is sovereign, that God controls rulers and kingdoms. In addition, God gives rule to whomever he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. It's his way of saying he will do what he will do and he will do it with whomever he chooses, even if you don't like him even if you're disgusted by him. And in verse 17, it says, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. You know why the living? Because the dead already know. The dead already know. The dead know that there's a supernatural dimension where people are either in a place of righteous place or unrighteous place. The king hears the decree in verse 18. 
and the sentence of the holy ones and the name of the being for whom the judgment is being executed. He hears this supernatural being refer to the ultimate being, the most high. Again, it may be that Nebuchadnezzar had a strong suspicion that his empire and he himself was the shadowy dew covered figure in the vision. What was this tree that was going to become a man and then a beast? Now, again, I want you to just put yourself in our friend's place just for a moment. What happens when your worst fear, your worst nightmare proves true? Now, again, perhaps the king with fear and trembling, he needs to know the truth about the terrible vision. And he needs to know the truth about himself. There is this growing fear. And there is this growing darkness that's welling up inside of him that is becoming dangerously close to depression and despair. And as frightening as it is, he still wants to know the truth. It would be like, imagine something's gone terribly wrong in your life. And you're afraid to go to the doctor because your mother, your father, your grandparents died of cancer. You don't want to hear, you don't want to hear the diagnosis. You, there's, there's something more frightening than the pain that you're experiencing. It's the possibility that you could go to the doctor and you could find out that your worst fears have been confirmed. Nebuchadnezzar needs to know the truth. He needs to know the truth. And so he asks Daniel, you need to tell me the truth. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how people will try to find the truth in astrology, in divination, in supernatural expectations. They'll go with ghosts and goblins and witches. They'll go with the scientific community. They'll go anywhere other than the Bible to try to find out the answer. And so as we close, at this very moment, I'm going to invite you to ask yourself, this question. Do I have enough courage to ask God the truth about what's going on inside of my heart? What's going on inside of my circumstances? The truth about myself. The truth about my spiritual condition, the truth about my heart. Here's what we know. Here's what we already know and we're certain of. God knows the truth about what's in my heart. And your heart, is he prepared to reveal it? And so we go back to our initial question. Are you a person who learns lessons the easy way or the hard way? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that if what the New Testament says about Jesus is true, that Jesus came to deliver us from our sin, that he rose from the dead, that he's alive, and that he is a revealer, of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Lord, we pray, we invite you to reveal what's going on inside of our life. Lord, we pray that you would, that we would no longer conceal what's wrong, but reveal what's wrong and be willing to take the cure. Lord, we know that things can be dealt with with mercy or with judgment. 
Lord, we, we know that mercy precedes judgment. Lord, we thank you that according to the scripture, you haven't dealt with us according to our sin. You haven't rewarded us according to our iniquity. But in grace and mercy, you're willing to forgive our sin and cleanse our heart. Lord, I pray. I pray that you would do exactly that. And Lord, again, I pray that as we continue our study in this amazing chapter, that Lord, we would be less terrified of the depression and the darkness and more terrified of the judgment. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace and the mercy to receive the truth, to embrace the truth, and to walk in the truth that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so again, Father, we commit these things to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.